0: Okay. Um, We're in Ruth. Uh, A couple weeks ago, our first week, we kind of set the stage, the the setting that we're talking about. That This happened in the time of the judges, um, which is kind of a special time um, to the Jewish people because it was before they had a king. And so it was the time when Torah or Scripture was the only real king of Israel. Um, And we find out from this book, from the book of Ruth, that they actually took some of this stuff kind of seriously. The the Torah outlines things like gleaning and kinsmen redeemers and stuff like this. And we find out from the book of Ruth that people actually tried to do these things. They actually tried to obey and follow Torah. Um, And so this was the kind of the era when God was the only king of Israel. And we also talked about how this is a story within a story, that this book... Um, of Ruth falls in the midst of the book of Judges, which falls in the midst of the story of Israel, which is in the midst of the story of, the, of God and humanity. And that um, God is interested in the big stories. He's interested in the worldwide stories and the, the condition of the world and the people who are way far away and struggling. He's thinking about those people and we should too. He's also interested in the national stories and the local stories and our story. And so God is... Is always involved in little stories in the midst of big stories. Um, and sometimes we have a tendency to, to focus on one or the other. We think he's all about the personal journey and he's all about our heart and he's not about the injustices out there, um, that are happening and he just wants to change a, a, a single heart. And that's true. Um, he does want to change a single heart, but he also wants us to work out there as a, as a church to make the world better. And he's always telling both stories, the big stories and the little stories. Then week two, we talk about entropy, how everything falls apart, left alone, everything eventually just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and it happens to Naomi in the story. The story starts, um, with a famine. And then from there, people just keep dying and things just keep getting worse. Her husband dies. Her two sons die. She pushes her daughter-in-laws away and it's a story of collapse really um and we talked about the uh the reason things fall apart and that's because of sin um just that sin is in the world we talked about the four primary broken relationships in the book of genesis um and how they all show up here in ruth the, the broken relationship with the creation where god said curse should be the ground for your sake there's this broken relationship with the ground and uh and that shows up in this famine. Um, Ruth, they have to move because the ground won't give them food. And so they, they move. And then the broken relationship with God, where Adam hides himself from God and he, he doesn't want God to see him. And that shows up, um, here in, uh, in every word Naomi says, she, you can tell she's just positive God hates her. That she, I think she says it six or eight times that, you know, God has turned his hand against me. God has, has, uh, uh, forsaken me. I went out. Full and I came back empty because the Lord has set his hand against me. Like, he, she's positive that there's, that God doesn't love her anymore. Um, then there's the broken relationship with the other, where Adam blames Eve for, for the, one sin shows up, he blames Eve for the sin. He's like, no, she did it. Separates himself from her and puts her over there and him over here. And how Ruth does that, or Naomi does that. I mean, she, she makes it sound like she's trying to help people, but what she's doing is saying, I should be alone. She pushes her two daughter in laws away rather than, then conquer the problem together, and turn to them and say, "We are in a fix, and I need your help." She pushes them away and says, "I'm. I should be alone. I. I shouldn't have help." And we talked about how um, finally the broken relationship with ourself. When Adam and Eve sinned, they looked down and and saw something they no longer liked. They were ashamed. They wanted to cover up and and present this false self. Um, put the fig leaves on and say, you know, I, I no longer like what I see. I'm no longer comfortable in my own skin. And that happened with Naomi. She tried to rename herself. She was no longer comfortable with who she was and wanted a new name, basically a fig leaf name. So, and then we talked about how the end of the book, we skipped to the end of the book and talked about how in the end of the book, Naomi um, uh, has an heir and she's, she. it's this image of her laying back with this baby, um, and knowing that things are good. Boaz is caring for them. They're back. they got their family land back. And and then it gives the genealogy of Boaz um, from this baby, and it goes all the way to David and eventually all the way to Christ. And all of this comes from this broken story. We talk about how God is in the business of redeeming things. He takes broken things, dead things, and brings them to life. That's just what he does. And so that's what he does in this story. Um, he redeems. It's a redemptive story. And then last week... We switched things up a little bit. We got into kind of the timing of of Ruth's commitment to Naomi. She has this big, grand commitment, you know, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God and your people, my people. You know, and she makes this big commitment. We talked about the interesting timing of that. Then we got into some of the typology of the book where we were looking at these types. Because Boaz classically stands as a type of Christ um, because he's the redeemer in this story. And so we think of him as the way Christ redeems us. He redeems Naomi and Ruth. But... There's something interesting in the fact that Ruth makes her big grand commitment before Boaz even enters the story. She commits herself to Naomi, not Boaz. And so she, she doesn't even know Boaz when she's like, where you go, I go, where you, um, you know, die, I'm gonna die. And, uh, we talked about how historically, um, theologians have seen the church in two ways that kind of coexist. They see it as the institution. Um, started by Christ. A lot of times the institution gets a black eye, but it, it was an institution founded by Christ. It is his institution um, to proclaim the gospel, administer the sacraments and advance the kingdom of God by doing good. That's And it's a like an organization that Jesus started to do that. But it's also simultaneously the company of God's elect that are known only to God. And that spans throughout time. So it's It's the chosen believers by God, but it's also this organization. And the organization kind of involves both, uh, that elect and other people. And we talked about the wheat and the tares, the parable that Jesus tells where the guy plants wheat and then an enemy comes in and plants tares. And the tares spring up and everybody's like, hey, um, you know, did you plant good seed? And he says, yeah, somebody else must have planted the tares. And and his workers were like, well, should we go tear them out? Should we just get them out of there? He's like, no, don't do that. If you tear the tares out, you're going to tear the wheat up. Um, he said, you're going to do more damage to the wheat trying to find the tares than you would just let them grow together. And and he even says that the angels at the end will separate them. That's not your job. Your job is just to let them grow. Let them be together. And so we left it with the uh, understanding that maybe... Um, Naomi stands as a type of the church, the church organization that people kind of fall in love with and bind themselves to and connect themselves to. And and that uh, and that in that context, they meet Boaz. And so we uh, we talk about how maybe sometimes we have it backwards today. We like to get people to commit to Jesus and then they can join and follow. And that the pattern biblically was a little backwards. Remember, we talked about Jesus told Peter, follow me. And it was three years before he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave his big declaration of faith. And so sometimes follow should come first. Sometimes we say, come join us, be a part of us, get to know us, hang out with us, see if we're doing good, see if you like this people. And then in that context, a lot of times it's, it might even be years before someone is like, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so um, we conclude that sometimes the best thing we can do is just invite people to join us, to join the visible church, to join the the institution, and be a part of us, help us uh, spread good in the world. Um, and it's not really our job to sort out who's in and who's out. Um, and that's uh, and that's where we left last week, which brings us to tonight. I'm kind of excited about this because last week's message has a tendency to leave us feeling like, then what is our job in leading people to Christ? If that's above our pay grade, if ultimately that's God's work, then what's our part? Like, what do we do? Um, you know, why not just I'll let God sort it out. You know, you may feel that tension, like, if, if this is God's work, then, then what's my job? Well, that's what we're hopefully going to get into tonight. And, uh, let me start by saying this. We're treating this passage typologically. Okay, we're looking at the patterns here to see if they might, um, reveal something to us today. But this comes with some warnings. When you deal with types, you never create a doctrine or a theology. You have to be real careful with that. You don't ever look at patterns inside of a narrative and try to come up with like some solid doctrine. Therefore, it must be blah, blah. The best we can do is take some more definitive texts, some more definitive um, theologies and, and doctrines and dogmas, and maybe see how that pattern has been revealed in other stories as well. So we've got to be real careful. So I'm not suggesting a theology here, or even an ecclesiology. I'm not even suggesting this is absolutely the way we do church. I'm just maybe trying to spark our imagination a little bit to think about church a little differently. So, so give me a little leash as we, uh, um, as we dig here. Okay. So we're not trying to create new doctrines. So let's break down the timing of this passage, because I think the timing is important. Ruth, um, and I, I, I'm sorry, I had to have such a long reading. But when you're dealing with narrative text, sometimes you have to get a big chunk of the story to be able to talk about it. And so that's why we had such a long reading today. But, um, but Ruth makes a perfectly economic decision. Hey, can, how about I go glean in this field over here? It's a relative anyway. And I'll go get, uh, I'll glean over there to provide for us. So she's providing for her mother-in-law. While she's gleaning, she catches Boaz's eye. Boaz sees her. He sees her working, sees her gleaning. And his interest is sparked. And so he, before she even knows he exists, he starts to do things for her. He goes to his men and say, hey, let her glean with, with our people and, you know, and take care of her and, and don't send her away. He starts to kind of uh, straighten her path before she even knows he exists. And then he initiates contact he goes up to Ruth and says, you know, um, who, you know, what's your name, blah, blah. And she, she's like, how do you even know who I am? He's like, well, I've heard of you and what you've done for your mother-in-law. And so he goes up to her and initiates contact, um, and starts to take care of her. And then she goes back and tells Naomi what's going on in her life. Um, and remember Naomi kind of stands as we're dealing with this as a type of the church. She goes back to talk about everything that this Boaz is doing in her world. Um, and at this point, Naomi, Naomi sort of takes over and it's kind of neat what she does here. Um, and she advises Ruth on how to pursue Boaz. So Naomi basically, as Ruth comes to her and says, um, oh, it's this guy and he gave me permission to glean and he even threw off some barley for him, blah, blah, blah. Um, Naomi basically goes, okay, here's what you do. Here's how you ultimately kind of close the deal. And I think the order of events here is significant um, because Boaz sets his eye on Ruth first, but Naomi does have a part. So let's read this again. I'm just going to read the last part. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that I may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whom young woman, uh, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the men until he has finished eating and drinking. The man, till he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say. I will do. So this is the part we're going to focus on tonight, this little passage here. And if we're honest, Ruth or Naomi kind of breaks out the feminine wiles here a little bit. She basically tells Ruth how to seduce Boaz is basically what's happening here. And um, that's not exactly what we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about the ancient art of seduction, though I did land Esther. So clearly I have game. And so I could, I could, but we're not, we're not going to. Yeah, so. All right, back on track. So Naomi stands in our study as the church. So let's flesh this out a little bit um, in context of the church and see if it holds together. Someone falls in love with the church. They like what we're doing. They see the direction we're going. They like um, they're compelled by the fact that we're trying to do community in a world that prefers alone. They're compelled with the fact that we're trying to break down racial, socioeconomic, gender and political barriers in a world that seems to be bent on division. They like the fact that we want to give in a world that seems bent on taking. You know, they're they're compelled by what we're about. And mostly they're compelled by the fact that we are taking this ancient concept, this outdated, clearly worn out concept of God, seriously in the real world, in our lives. And they're compelled by that. They're like, man, these people are normal people who seem to take God seriously. And they, they want that. And so they say, I'm in. I want to be a part of that. Like, I, I, I like this group. I want to be in this group. Maybe they're not like Ruth. Maybe they're not like, where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. You know, maybe it's not that extreme. But they're like, hey, I'm in. This is cool. I'm in. And then the Redeemer starts to do things for them. Things start to go well and things start to happen and things start to move in their life. And, and in fact, I had a friend that used to say, um, if you want to see miracles, he said, if you want to see miracles, hang around new Christians, because God just seems to spoil the hell out of those guys. Like that's He was like, if you want to see big things happen, find new Christians. Because it just seems like everything... Like once we get older, God's like, okay, okay time to learn some lessons. And you're like, no, I want to be a new Christian again. Yeah, but like when you're new, it just seems like... I don't know, Have you guys ever noticed that when you're around new Christians and they come in with their eyes wide and glowing and you're not going to believe what God did for me. Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, just wait. No. um, I don't know. um So they... The, so God's the Redeemer starts to do things for these people and then they come back to the church and they're like, man, God is doing this in my life and God is doing that in my life. And, you know, this is happening. And that's, I'm you know, I used to hate church and now so that's all I can think about. And, you know, I man, I was listening to Caleb and this song just made me cry. That's when you know it's God. If Caleb like makes you cry, like I'm not a Caleb fan. Like every time I hear the begathon, I'm like, oh man, some non-Christian just heard that. Like that's what I think. But then I'll then I'll be flipping through and I'll hit this song and I'm bawling while I'm driving and I'm like, okay, this must be God because Caleb just made me cry. But um But they tell us, and then um, while they're telling us what's going on in our life, that's when our job kicks in. That's when we have a role. One of the one of my favorite pictures of it, other than this one in Ruth, is in Samuel. Let's go there. It says, Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, uh, this is Eli. Eli said, I did not call you. Go lay down again. So he went and laid down, and the Lord called him again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord said to Samuel, called Samuel a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. What I really love here is Eli's role. Eli's job in this. Eli does not introduce Samuel to God. God introduces Samuel to God. Eli doesn't make a convincing argument and simultaneously say, I have all the answers. You clearly know nothing. Let me explain this to you. Like, that's not how it works. But Eli does have a role. He has a very important role. If you pull Eli out of this story, um, things get real weird because Samuel thinks he's hearing voices. (laughs) Samuel does have a role. He doesn't say, let me save you. He doesn't say, I'm bringing God to you. He doesn't say anything. All he says is, let me help you understand what God is already doing in your life. Let me give you some definitions for what God is doing. It's not what I'm doing. I'm not giving you God. I'm not saving you, but I can... Look at what God is doing in your life and help you to understand it. I know that's subtle. I know it feels like a subtle difference. But can you feel the difference? Can you feel that the difference with what Eli is doing here? He's, all he's doing is telling Samuel what God is doing. He's helping Samuel understand what God is doing. We cannot offer anybody God. We can't offer anybody Jesus. We're not, we don't have that power. We're not big enough for that. What we can do is help them see the areas where the God who loves them desperately is already at work in their life. We can help them see those things when they're like, man, this, uh, and we can go, that's God. You're, and now you say, speak, Lord, I, I'm listening. Like we can help them understand what their next step is. And that's important for us to understand that because i I think especially in Western Christianity, we get this kind of superhero complex, like we're out to save the world, you know no God's out to save the world, and we're humbled that he lets us have a part, and when we see him working, when we see him doing things, we can step in and go that's that's God, I want you to know that's God working in your life, that's God doing these things for you. I feel that um, what Naomi does in tonight 's passage um she sees what's happening in Ruth, and she helps point it out. Um, and I think this is the job of the visible church, the institution. This is what we do. This institution founded by Christ to advance the kingdom of God on earth. The church helps people like you and me, or anyone who wanders in, see where God is already at work in their life. Tonight we're going to look at one of the main ways we do this which is liturgy. It's called liturgy. And we're going to break this down a little bit. So uh, this passage, these are all excerpts from 1 Corinthians 14, where they're talking about worship in the church, specifically the, the gift of tongues, which had gotten kind of confused. And so Paul's kind of speaking into this um, confusion and these debates um, and says a few things. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct, instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What then, brothers, would you come together? Each one has a hymn and a lesson and a revelation and a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up, but in all things should be done decently and in order. This is what we call liturgy. Paul's conclusion is we need Liturgy, that line decently and in order is basically a good definition for liturgy. It's that we do things, we don't just come in and and just kind of go chaotic about it. We have an order to things. Doesn't matter if it's a contemporary liturgy or a classic um, uh, liturgy. Um, really, it's all the same. It's all liturgy. Uh Rightly ordered worship is what we kind of use as our definition for liturgy here. Rightly ordered worship, and liturgy um, can be confused with rigidity—that um, you're, you know, you're stuck in doing it this one way kind of thing. But I think that's kind of inaccurate because what liturgy really is is rhythm. It's rhythm. And the world is built this way. Like we all do this. We have morning alarms, brush teeth, meal times, rush hour, work week, sports season, school years. All these things are liturgies. They're the rhythms by which our life works. They're the things that we that we use to mark time and roll through. And and this creates a uh, kind of a rhythm. They're the liturgy is the ritualistic behaviors that we build our life around to create space for the things that are important to us. And they change over time. It used to be, it didn't used to be rush hours and sports seasons. It used to be sunrise, sunset, planting and harvesting, chores and meal times, breeding seasons, auction seasons. Like these used to be the liturgies that that society worked on. Other societies had rating seasons. There's some societies that weren't uh farmers, they would Every year they had a raiding season. It was like football season. You just you knew as soon as the frost clears, we're going to go out and we're going to conquer a couple nations, steal all their stuff, bring it back, and that's how we get our stuff. Is we have a a raiding a wartime season. In fact, Israel was is one of these. There's a the beginning of the story of David and Bathsheba. It says at the time when kings go to war, David chose to stay home. That's what got him in trouble. So it was it was war season, like like football season, I guess. You just you know, August or September 1st, you know, first weekend of September, we do our first attack, you know, plan it out from there, I guess. But litur- liturgy is how we integrate the things that are important to us into the flow of our life. And this is part of the original design. I'm sure you guys have figured out. I like to go back to the original creative design to figure out what we're supposed to be about as humans and then to kind of parse out what got broken along the way. Um, I've, I've done it several times. This is where I get my... Commitment to community that God looked at a sinless Adam and a sinless garden and say, hey, this is not good for you to be alone. You need others. You're supposed to have community. That original design before there was ever a sin included community, included us. So I feel like the one of the redemptive things we do, one of the ways we try to put things back into their original created order is by creating community because that's what we were created for. Um, But it's also where I find the first liturgy. Um, which is uh, which is here. It says, and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to each of their kind on the earth. And it was so. And God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night, and let the signs be for seasons and days and years." So God created rhythms. I mean, can you imagine if God created with no liturgy, if you just never knew when nighttime was going to come again, and then it just all of a sudden happened, and then you didn't know when it was going, to, the sun was going to come up again, and it might be weeks this time, and days the next time, and hours the next time, and but he didn't. He created this rhythm, this pattern. And you could say, man, God's totally stuck in a rut twenty-four hours a day. Like, that like God, he's just totally dry, he's not spontaneous. You know. No, it's rhythmic. He created these rhythms. So here we have day, night, seed, and harvest seasons, rhythms of days and years. And much later we find um, that this natural rhythms, even in our biology, everything from circadian rhythms to hormonal rhythms cycles just that we have these rhythms even built into us that being made from the earth we carry these cycles and rhythms in us and we learn about all this basically in elementary school it doesn't take long to figure out if we don't but then we see a different type of um, of liturgy of rhythm emerge it says thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts in them and on the seventh day god finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So not only do we have natural rhythms, but we have the creation of an artificial rhythm. There's an arbitrary rhythm. There's really nothing natural that makes seven days work. I mean, we all know leap year, you know, it doesn't even fit. Like mathematically, seven days doesn't even makes sense you know some months have 30 some have 31 then you got february and then you got leap year that gets weird and so there's just like god picked an arbitrary time and said and he just created this arbitrary rhythm that from then on marks the earth that we take a day off that we that we rest and god chose a day of rest i doubt he was worn out i mean that's just me i'm reading in there but i doubt he was like i gotta sit down for a minute Like, I think he just chose a liturgy. He chose a rhythm that everything would move by from then on. And we're created in the likeness of God. And this is this rhythm, this pattern, this cycle, this liturgy, if you will, has been a part of the Jewish faith system with Sabbaths and festivals and jubilees. And it immediately became part of the Christian faith system. The Lord's Day they talk about, which was Sunday. Sabbath was Saturday, and the Christians immediately met the next day on the Lord's Day, and they created this this liturgy of of weekly worship. Church calendars quickly sprung up. Sprung up. All these rhythms and patterns and cycles immediately became part of the church. In the very um, uh, early church. We see Paul automatically saying we need, when we come together, rightly ordered worship. We need some patterns. We need some cycles and some rhythms that we can move to. We need, um, you know, we need something to mark our mark our times. And and what's interesting is these have held um, the classic liturgy, which we use kind of an adaptation of. Um, has held through denominational changes, the big church schisms between East and West, the Reformation. Like this this uh, kind of liturgy that that uh, is in the church has, has been solid for a really, really long time. And as much as the church has changed and as many times as it's split and changed, you still see this basic pattern of liturgy that's made it through. This basic form of worship is held. Um, and we... You know, today in the modern era, we do have this tendency to move toward the novel, um, toward the you know the more spontaneous. You know, that something about liturgy has become rote and dry, and and we don't like it. You know, because we want to be surprised. I guess when we come to words, what's he going to do today? You know, and um, but uh, but even those churches are still liturgical. I mean, if you go to a non-denominational church that. Um, that doesn't follow a classic liturgy, they still quickly fall into a pattern. We do five songs, they start fast, then they get slow, then the pastor prays, and then he preaches, and then afterwards we have an altar call. And, you know, it's still they still pretty quickly fall into a liturgy, a pattern, a way of doing things, which is good. And I'm not saying that one's better than the other. I'm just saying we are a rhythmic people. We can't escape that. And we need that. We need to embrace um, that liturgy. So anyway, at at Open Table, we... um, We've chosen to take some contemporary elements that we all love and kind of force them into a classic liturgy. Um, so we get kind of a taste of both. Um, and we're going to break down a little bit um, why we do that. Uh, we're kind of right at our one year anniversary. Um, I think next weekend is our official one year anniversary. Um, and so and we're not going to be here. We're all going to be watching the Super Bowl. That's awesome. That just dawned on me for the first time. Um but I don't want people to think that I'm just kind of a rigid historian who likes old stuff. And that's why we do this. We're going to talk a little bit about why we do, why we do it. Um, but because uh, every church has a liturgy. And you can either kind of be proactive and decide the liturgy you want and choose and have a reason. Or you can, I mean, even like the the, the churches where there's kind of a new thing where you you change it up so much nobody knows what's going to happen but pretty soon that just becomes a liturgy of spontaneity where the 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 liturgical rhythm is something spontaneous every week and that's what you come to expect and you're but you still fall into this cycle of this new spontaneity what's you going to come up with next what's going to be the next big thing but um but liturgical rhythms make us step out of the chaos um, and take a minute to sing and pray and um stand up with other people and when they read Scripture and, and all these things. So, uh, there's nothing more sacred about this moment than there is about your Tuesday morning drive into work. There's nothing different in that. There's nothing that makes this more God than that, other than our liturgy, that something about this time we've created to draw us toward God, to draw us toward Him, and your drive into work on Tuesday morning seems bent on doing the opposite. I mean, it, it seems more drawn to drive you away from God and toward your middle finger. I'm, sorry. Um, so in the rhythms, uh, if we look at these rhythms, they're a lot like the story here in Ruth. Um, if you look at them as like relationship advice, almost like our liturgy is kind of relationship advice. Imagine um, like a Sunday at OTCC. Uh, let's go to the next one. Um, if this was relationship advice, make sure you say something nice about him. Say you're sorry when you mess up. Be open and share some of your hopes and dreams and hurts. Make sure you went over his friends. Listen when he talks. Don't stare at your phone. Get to know him. Can you guys see the the relationship built into the liturgy? So just as Naomi's advice had like form to it, so does ours. And we begin to learn the rudiments of relationship in the liturgy. Um... What time is it? Does anybody know? Have I been talking for a long time? Okay. I'm going to keep preaching. Tell me when to stop if I go too far. feels like i got a lot left. (laughs) Um, Our liturgy is the way of telling people if they want to follow Jesus, if they feel Jesus working in their lives, the best way is worship, confession, prayer, blessing children, honoring a scripture reading, learning about Him. We're giving them the. We're, we're telling them how to approach this Redeemer that has suddenly stepped into their life. We're telling them how to seduce Boaz. You do it by confessing, and you do it by worship, and you do it by honoring the Scripture and praying for people, blessing children. This is how we draw the attention of Boaz. So. Um, I thought it'd be fun to discuss a little bit of the rationale behind why we do some of the things we do at OTCC at our one year anniversary. Um, Some of you were here and we talked about these a year ago. Some weren't. So it'd be kind of neat to refresh them a little bit. And this isn't an exhaustive list, um, but it does give an idea of why we do some of what we do. Um, I believe liturgy is supposed to be the focus. Um, We kind of live in a celebrity culture. And a lot of times um, church starts to look like a rock and roll concert and we have kind of a rock star worship leader and a, uh, you know, kind of a central figure in the pastor who everything kind of revolves around. And it's it's kind of all about um, him. And I think liturgical services give us it allows the service to become the center of attention. We get other people doing things and and. And really it 's the rhythm that starts to take on the central focus. Um, the liturgy itself is the feature we 're looking at, not a celebrity. Next, um, I think it ties us to the past. I think we are part of a people, and the the classic liturgy, as much as we can hang on to some of those elements, have been around almost two thousand years they've been part of our uh, part of our our way of doing things in the church. There's been some element of the church that uses has used liturgical elements for all, since almost the beginning. Uh, in our house, you know, we have certain rules and ways of doing things. They're not like rigid. They're just the way they've always been done. We don't let the kids get down from the table until everybody's done eating. It's just something we've always done. So when the kids finish eating, they have to sit there bored while their dad talks to somebody. And their dad talks a lot. So a lot of times the kids are banging their head on the, the table before they can finally get up. And usually the Esther go, babe, you gotta let the kids go. <laughs> oh, am I still talking? Um, but they, uh, but what's funny is, is now our younger ones just do it. I don't remember ever making a rule for them. It's just become the way we do it. And now my oldest son has kids of his own. And when they come over, um, I've noticed they stay at the table until, uh, we're done eating. And I asked my son about it. He's like, oh yeah, we do that at home. Like, and he's like, we don't let them get down until we're all, get down until we're all done. It's just a, And he did that because that's the way he was brought up. It's just part of our family now. It's just become part of our family. And the church is that way. We have certain elements that are only here because they've always been here. And that's okay. Because it's part of what it means to be a family. Is you have some quirky little family things that keep getting passed down. And it's good to have those. It's what gives us identity. A liturgy gives us a a connection to millions and millions and millions of Christians that have gone before us. Can you imagine how many Christians have prayed the prayer of contrition? Most merciful God, have mercy on me, I have sinned in thought and word and deed. Like have you, that we're like linking ourselves up with millions of Christians who have used those words to ask for forgiveness. It's kind of beautiful. Next. Um I believe liturgy offers true hospitality, and this one's kind of interesting. And this is this is one I'm big on. Um I think, I think the church is supposed to be welcoming and hospitable. We're supposed to uh, invite people in. It's what we do. And unfortunately, I think in contemporary churches, we've kind of lost track of what that means. And I like this word picture. If I were to go to France, why I would go to France? I have no idea. But let's say I went to France and I get there. And, you know, when I get there, I'm hoping they're going to be welcoming and hospitable, that they're going to be open to me and that they're going to um, invite me. But what would be wrong is if I go to France and they're like, oh, part of our hospitality is, you know, we're just going to serve you greasy burgers and get you the New York Times. We're going to talk about the Royals. We're going to try to get rid of our accent and just act American while you're here as an act of hospitality. That doesn't make any sense because I went to France to see France. Like, I want you to show me French things. I want you to show me your country. Yes, welcome me and invite me. But don't like, don't turn it American because that's not why I'm here. I'm here to see France. I'm here to see what you have to offer. I think a lot of times in the church, we've, we've basically taken the concept of hospitality and we've said, we're going to make this so easy for you. We're going to make this look like a trip to Starbucks. Like we're going to make this look like everything that's already comfortable to you. We're going to make this look like America while you're in France and we're going to hold on to the essentials. I'm not saying that people compromise the essentials. I'm just saying we've, we wash out everything that's ancient about us, everything that kind of identifies us throughout time as Christians to make it comfortable. And, and I feel like part of true hospitality is to say, come, see, we love you. We're anxious to see you. We're going to be friendly to you. We're going to invite you in. But we also want to show you what it's like to be in the people of God and to be part of a people that have been here for a very, very long time. True hospitality, I think, is to invite people into our home, not turn our home into their home so that um, they can, you know, feel completely at ease, but to invite them in to see what it's like to be part of the people of God. So I think, uh, um, and this is another reason I love having communion, you know, because we're drawing people into the old story over and over again that we're saying um, we're, we're a people who gather around um, a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice on our behalf, like this old ancient thing that doesn't even really fit our culture anymore. But um, this group of ordinary people who are going to go out tomorrow and do completely ordinary things and, and be in the world and, and try to do good and advance the kingdom and bless people. We gather around this ancient table together um, every single week. Um, I just accidentally closed my thing next. And I swear I'm almost done. Um, I think it shapes us more than we shape it. Uh, and I think that's, what's good. I think we have a tendency with services to try to make creativity, the central feature. So we're constantly trying to come up with something new Rather than letting the 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 service change us, we're constantly changing it. Um there's a quote I'm gonna throw up here real quick. It says, uh, sure, sometimes it's great when in prayer we can express to God exactly what we feel. But better still, when in the act of praying, our feelings change. Liturgy is not in the end open to our emotional whims. It repoints the person praying taking himself somewhere else or taking him somewhere else. So the liturgy can move us around rather than us constantly moving it around. I'm now starting to skip stuff. I know I've been going a long time. Um, and the last one we're going to talk about tonight is it sets the tone uh, for why we are here. There's two basic fundamental um, philosophies behind the church service. There's one where this is the place of ministry. So this is where ministry happens. People come here to get saved, to get blessed, to get healed. And really all our job is as people is to bring them in. So really the only real job of everybody else is, is this like, is just dragging people into church. If I can get them into the church, we'll let the professionals handle them. That's kind of, that's one model. And if that's, if that's true, then the church kind of, the, the customer or the target becomes the unbeliever. And so we cater to that. We change it to, you know, we want, our goal is to draw everybody in so that, so we have to change things to make it inviting to those people. The problem is we usually get stuck in some weird middle ground where it's mostly inviting, but then, um, some of it's not and, and we get stuck. The other model is that this is the place where believers gather to get built up, encouraged, strengthened, love on each other, find and build community so that we can go out and out there is the place of ministry. So one model in here is the place of ministry. The other one out there is the place of ministry where everybody gets sent out to their jobs and their families and their friends to bless people and love on people and and help people and spread the good news and that, that Jesus is alive. And so, that second model is about gathering in here, being breathed into god 's sacred presence, so that we can encourage each other, build each other up, and then you guys go do the ministry and that 's the, that's the the second and i 'm not here to make an argument as to which one is better, which one 's better. I just, we adhere to the second. Our goal is not necessarily to drag a ton of unbelievers in here um, so that we can save them, like we invite people to become part of us to join us to. To be part of a movement and a body and a, and a community. But our goal is to strengthen them up, to send them out to do ministry. Like the ministry doesn't happen in here. This is where we encourage each other. The real ministry happens out there. And I, I pick on Charlie all the time. I swear more church happens in Charlie's garage than happens here. I mean, every, every time I'm there, people come in and they're down and they're like, man, I don't know. and like, this group of guys, like, gather around them and encourage them and, and like, Every time I'm there, I'm blown away at how much church is happening in Charlie's Garage. I tell him all the time, like, you do more church than I do, I think. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's where ministry happens. One of my favorite quotes about this is from Eugene Peterson. and I think I'm just going to throw this out there and then quit because I have no idea where the end is. Um, I got into this thing and I just couldn't quit writing. Okay. The task of liturgy is to order the life of the holy community following the text of Holy Scripture. It consists of two movements. First is getting us into the sanctuary, the place of adoration and attention, listening and receiving and believing before God. Uh, there is a lot involved, all the parts of our lives ordered to all aspects of the revelation of God in Jesus. Then it goes out of the sanctuary into the world, into places of obeying and loving Ordering our lives as living sacrifices in the world for the glory of God. There is a lot involved. All the parts of our lives out on the street participating in the work of salvation. And this, this does come with challenges because there's no metric. This is one of the problems is when the ministry happens in here, the metric is easy. We have head counts, we have hand raises, and there's always someone in the back keeping score, right? The metric's simple when all the ministry happens in there. There's no metric for when the ministry happens out there. There's no way to count that. So we're left wondering, how do we know when we're successful? And this is the beauty of the liturgy. If, you're, if your purpose for being here is to worship and to pray and to hear scripture and to lay your hands on kids and bless them and to study the word together, then that's our metric. At the end of a Sunday, if we've done those things, it was a success. We're not counting heads and we're not keeping track did we do the liturgy how do we respond to this there it is found the end first i would hope that you would own the liturgy that you would fight it becoming rote that when i say peace be with you you would wish me peace and also with you and mean it that when you would pray the prayer of contrition You'd take a minute and say, God, I know I blew some things this week. And you would pray those words and just let them, let those old words that people have prayed for a long time wash over you. That you would just let them kind of cleanse you, absolve you, if you will. I pray that this would become fresh every week. Because anything can become rote if we let, if our hearts let it. Second, as we sing this last song, um, would you think of the week ahead of you? The things you have planned. You can even like stand in line and plan them out. Think about what am I doing Monday? What am I doing Tuesday? Just think of your week. And that you might... Um, that as we take communion, you might ask God to fill you up so that you work out of a place of rest, that you work out of a place of peace, that, that, we, that we look at this time of liturgy as, as recharging, that we, that we come in here, even if we drag ourselves in limping, and then we just sit and just soak in God's presence. We think about, okay, what do I got this week? got to charge the batteries. I've got to fill up because I'm going out to do it again, knowing that I'll be here again to charge up again. Not next week. It's the Super Bowl. Dang it. We have to really charge up during this last song. Um, no, we don't because we're doing church together in people's houses. I hope that you'll hit tomorrow morning, even as you take communion, that you would just pray that God would just, even through this act, fill you up so that you hit the road tomorrow full of the Holy Spirit, just ready to do the work of God. I pray that that you might focus in on that as we sing and take communion.